welcome to the Kanji Cast, the podcast that you never made a deal with. We're also the show that didn't make the castle run in 12 parsecs, even if you round down. But we do provide an Asian perspective into the galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Bria, and with me are my co-hosts, Brian and Jay. Hello. Hello. On today's episode, we're talking about the member Inferno squad you might not know, Sen Marana. So sit back and enjoy the show. And hey, guys, how are we doing tonight? I'm like three weeks away from being a dad, so uh, I'm not, nothing big going fine. on. <laughs> fine, we're all so fine. You're here. fine. How are you? Yeah, yeah. Pew pew. Jay, now you have to follow that one up. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you know, I, I'm I'm having the deepest struggle of my life, which is deciding whether to play Pokemon or watch The Crown. So obviously, life is really hard for me right here. Oh, buddy, that's <laughs> oh, that's. Uh, Can't you do them both rough. at the same time? I mean, what's what's the easier version of first world problems? Because that's what this is. This is very specifically a J problem, I think. Yeah, it is an oh, exceedingly boy. J problem. <sighs> uh, and meanwhile, I'm over here having just shoved a bunch of Thai food down my face because I figured, you know, eating is a good idea. Yeah, food sustenance uh, tends to be a good thing, right? <sighs> so, shall we get the show on the road? Let's hit it. All right, let's start off with our uh, our new segment called And Then There's This, which I realized because I was just watching a John Oliver episode, I totally just stole the name from him and, and mildly then changed it. this. Yeah. <laughs> and now this. I'm so sorry, John Oliver. Not really, but he's not listening to this anyways. Anyways. <laughs> just wait till the half an hour segment on how problematic ConjureCast is next time. I mean, honestly, if John if John Oliver did a segment when the show comes back about Kanji Cast and call it as problematic, I would just be happy. Like, please, if John Oliver knows who I am, I'm okay with that. We would get so much attention that way. It would be great. Also, it'd be really funny if like a middle aged white man called us out for being problematic for talking about Asian issues. Oh, that would be beautiful. Oh, anyways. Uh, We'll start off with something good. Uh, apparently, Kelly Marie Tran was cast in uh, Crudes 2 as one of the voice actors. I don't know much more than that because I added this to the show notes last week. But I'm always happy to see Kelly Marie Tran get more work. I will agree with that. I have not seen the first film, so I don't yeah, have it, a whole lot it's more. It's like to a CGI cartoon. I've heard good things. I also have not seen it. It is apparently, I think, on Netflix or something. So I guess people can if they want to. Is that the caveman one? Yes. Ah, okay. Hmm. Well, maybe we'll have something to watch once we've all watched our way through the entirety of Disney Plus. <laughs> so in 20 years. Yeah, yeah. It's fine. Everything's fine. Um Next on the list, Fresh Off the Boat was canceled. Uh, this is going to be its last season. They've got a couple more episodes. They didn't specify how many, but a couple more episodes when they come back in like January and February. Uh, this got some attention for a lot of reasons. Number one, because they made it to season, I think this was season six that they're in. That's a good long um, run for any network sitcom. Oh, yeah. I mean, I never I was shocked when they got renewed for season two. Um, and I've watched the show since day one and I've really enjoyed it. Uh, however, they did get put on the Friday night death slot. So it was kind of not surprising that this happened. I'm just surprised that they canceled it now instead of like next year. Um, 
And then, of course, you kind of can't talk about that without mentioning the whole thing with Constance Wu that happened earlier this summer where she was disappointed that the show got renewed because people were making some real snitty comments about that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yeah, if you guys have anything else on that, I don't think either of you watch it consistently. Oh. Um, I used to watch it. I did notice, though, one thing in the story that apparently they're pondering filming a spinoff show, maybe about yeah. an Indian family called Magic Motor Inn, which um, both strikes me as very stereotypical, but also po- potentially completely accurate, like in the same way that Fresh Off the Boat was where, you know, they're having, I believe, um, an Indian writer or co-creator or something. And I think that's important to making that experience, that spinoff seem authentic the way that Fresh Off the Boat tried to be. Yeah, I think they were going to uh, do one of those backdoor pilots. I don't think they filmed it yet, but that was their initial plan, I believe. Yeah, so six seasons is a good long run for a sitcom, and not just Constance Wu, but uh, the other members of that cast seemed like they were set to move on to other things in their career. So it's a bummer, but not terribly, not tragic. Yeah, it's also a good time to end it because the eldest kid, Eddie, is about to go off to college. Um, I think he's in his senior year of high school right now. And then I feel like that's always a problem when characters have to go to college, but they want to keep them integrated in the show. And they always find these convoluted ways to make it work out, Um, which to be fair, Eddie is not exactly the smartest tool in the box in the show. So they could have easily come up with a reason for him to, you know stay at home or go to a community college or something, but it's not a bad time to, to end it. Yeah. Uh, and I'm very glad that nothing else it's kind of helped launch or further launch the careers of both Constance Wu and Randall Park, who are both excellent. Yes. Agreed. If we get more Randall Park in uh more in the Ant-Man films, I will be very, very happy. If he's not back in the next Ant-Man film, I'm going to be very sad. Yes. <laughs> He's so he's so good in it. He really is. Um, okay, I'm gonna skip the next one from actually no, that was a good segue. Speaking of Marvel, we got some showrunning news, and Jessica Gao is going to be showrunning She-Hulk. She is known for being uh she's done some writing on Rick and Morty. Uh she won an Emmy for writing the Pickle Rick episode, apparently. Uh and apparently she really, really, really wanted this job. <laughs> So I'm happy she got it, and I don't know too much else about her. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, I don't know much about her in person, but I'm I'm interested to see what she can do, and I'm definitely interested um, in this because uh, the series because I you know I've not read She-Hulk, although it's been recommended to me a lot, and the the whole attorney thing sounds intriguing to me. Yeah, you need to get the uh, the run that Charles Soule did. Oh, I have it. I, I bought it during a Marvel sale. I just have not read it. Jay. I never read things. I, I have like literally like <laughs> dozens of comics that people have recommended to me and then they just sit on my Kindle. Tragic. I'm bad. Mm-hmm. I know. You are. Mm-hmm. You're terrible. Just the worst. Maybe John Oliver should do a segment on how I'm the worst. I mean, the Empire would contribute. Mm-hmm. Because, you know. That sounds like traitor talk traitor. for you. <laughs> Oh, excuse me. I was not the one talking about how, oh, I guess I was right to support the resistance earlier on Twitter today. That was you. 
Yeah, but I'm, you know, not the member of Inferno Squad that all went traitor, you know, so. Listen, sometimes people make a choice to be better, Jay. <sighs> Anyways, you should read his work on She-Hulk. You should also read Soul's work on um, Daredevil. That was a good run. Oh, I don't think I have that one. Oh, you should get it. Um, I think I think the takeaway here is you should just read more Charles Soule, period. Correct. <laughs> that is fair. Yeah. Uh, Brian, is this probably going to be one of the shows you check out once it comes up on, did they say Disney Plus? Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm assuming this one's Disney Plus, but yeah, this one's this one's on the list. Um, right up there with uh, Ms. Marvel as far as stuff I'm excited for. You're going to be so happy when Ms. Marvel happens, aren't you? <laughs> I, at some point, I'm going to do a big old segment just devoted to why I love Ms. Marvel, the comics, and the, just the character. I mean, hold on, let me pull up the schedule. We can probably yeah. make that happen. That's one comic I've actually read. Yeah. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Okay, we're going to make this happen. I'm scheduling it for April. Okay, and hmm, should see if we can find a guest for that one. Yeah, I've got a couple people in mind. I'll see. Uh, we'll discuss that one more off air. Yep, but it's on the schedule now. Um, Excellent. Live, guys, I, and guess what? None of the other co-hosts have actually seen the rest of the schedule I've been building so far, which is you know makes this fun. I'll it's show it to them eventually. It's just a, as much a surprise to us as it is to you, listeners. Okay, we just right show up expecting to discuss things. I do, okay, well, oh no, I'm kidding. We God. do prepare. I, yes, thank you. I, I do make them read the books ahead of time. There's some mild bullying involved. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. That's going, um, that's going on the problematic episode in John Oliver, by the way. Hey, I Rhea, mildly I, bullies her co-host. <laughs> I finished Inferno Squad with a whole day to spare. You did, and I was very proud of you when you started tweeting about it, Brian. <laughs> Uh, on a much uh, less entertaining note, uh, apparently, did you guys know that all handsome Asian men look the same? Because uh, CNET apparently misidentified Chris Pang as Simu Lu in their article about the Charlie's Angels movie. Oh, Lord. Oh, <laughs> Listen, I never want to get shit from anyone for occasionally not being able to tell white guys apart, okay? If y'all can't manage this and it yeah. wasn't even in like a you know a red carpet tweet or like misidentifying a picture they literally were writing up a review of the movie and i wanted to be like you can't even check imdb seriously oh my god it's not hard i mean they're both incredibly handsome men don't get me wrong but like come on <laughs> Do better, CNET. Do better. Yeah. Oh. And another, are you kidding me, news. This came out today, about a couple hours before we started recording. Rebel Wilson is, for some bizarre reason, writing and producing a K-pop comedy called Soul Girls for Lion Gate. And Why? that's Seoul is in the capital of South Korea. Yeah. Just, just let that one sink in. Like... Because I felt like the more I read that sentence, the worse it got. Yeah. Just, why? Why? This makes no sense. This, why? 
I mean, Reverend Wilson's totally the first person I would go to because, you know. Oh, and she'll also have a movie in or a role in the movie. She isn't even the first white person I'd go to for this. No. Um, apparently. Apparently, this the script did have a recent revision. By, I believe, a Korean writer. Um. But yeah, that doesn't. Yeah, yeah oh, Young Il Kim apparently is the uh, person who did the uh, revision of the script. Yeah. Who will follow a Korean American high school girl and her friends who enter a worldwide talent competition to be the opening act for the world's biggest K-pop boy band? With oh, here we go. With the help, with help from an ex-member of a British girl group and a former K-pop trainee, the Soul Girls find their voices on the world's biggest stage. Oh, there it is. It's the White Savior movie. Uh-huh. Oh God, my eye is twitching just hearing that. Mm-hmm. And as someone pointed out, uh, I'm not a K-pop aficionado, but like, I don't think that K-pop bands have opening acts. That's what someone said on Twitter, at least. I th- I could be wrong on that, but like, all right. Okay. Cool. I'm sure this uh, won't be a disaster in any way, shape, or form. Because, you know, Pitch Perfect was worked so well. Let's do it entirely with Asian characters. Mm. I mean, and I say this is someone who enjoyed Pitch Perfect, despite it being incredibly uh, problematic at times, but... Yeah. Oh, boy, the less said about this one, the better. Yeah. Jay, do you want to close us out on a happy note with the thing you added? Yeah, so uh, on the note of actual films produced by South Koreans that take place in South Korea, the film Parasite released in the United States uh, last month. Um, It's a film by Bong Joon-ho. And it's the first South Korean film to win the Palme d'Or at Cannes. And it's the first unanimous vote on that award since 2013. Um, It's basically a dark comedy uh, involving social class in two different Korean families. One extremely wealthy family, one extremely poor family. And it's kind of a comedy of errors and things predictably go wrong. And I highly suggest uh, not Googling any details because it is a film that will surprise you. Um, so it's worth going into uh, without any more information than that. Um, it's probably available in your local indie theater. I know it's made about $120 million worldwide. So it's pretty pretty good for a foreign independent film. That That is a pretty nice box office haul. Nice. And I think it's also been nominated for the best, uh, one of the, the the next Academy Awards for best foreign language film, I, I believe. That was going to be my next question: was whether it's in uh, whether it's subtitled or or in. Oh yes, yes. It, okay. It is. It is in full Korean with uh, subtitles. But I tell you, it is. Um, the characters are so relatable that I kind of forgot that I was watching a subtitled movie. Like even you know, even if you're comfortable with subtitled movie, like it really, really draws you in. Like the cast is fantastic and magnetic and the acting is super huh interesting i might have to go check that out uh well okay i'm sorry that's a lie i will eventually watch it at some point just probably not before it leaves theaters because november and december are disasters oh but it's time 
So many movies. Also, one last thing. It's not for small children. Oh, okay. A little scary? A uh, little dark. Did, did you bring a small child with you to see the movie, Jay? Oh, no, I did not go with uh, with uh, Geller. Not one? Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want to... Sub- don't subject Dave to that. Oh, poor Dave. <laughs> it's okay. He doesn't oh, listen Dave. to us. It's fine. Oh, I know. Oh. Okay. Anyways, <laughs> uh, we don't have anything else on... Uh, and then there's this. Oh, wait, sorry. And then, or whatever, John Oliver does not call his his segment. See, now I can't remember what we call it versus what he calls it. So I'm just going to get it wrong and confused in my head for like the next. Anyways, shall we move on? Let's do it. All right. So this month we are talking about San Marana, who is the fourth member of Inferno Squad in the Battlefront 2 Inferno Squad book by Christy Golden. Um I've been meaning to try and get Sen on our schedule to chat about her for a while, but different things kept coming up uh, and it got moved around on the schedule. So I didn't intend to talk to her about her around the second anniversary of the game coming out, but we're going to pretend I did it on purpose just because, you know, why not? So, yeah, what uh, Jay, I know you read the book back when it first came out and Brian, you just read it more recently. What were your guys initial thoughts on? On Sen. I I think she was my favorite character in the book for a multitude of reasons we'll get into. Um, even more than the dad moral, because the dad moral is kind of mean. Um, <laughs> the biggest thing with Sen, though, is, you know, for the life of me, when I was reading that book, even though we were told how to pronounce her name, I would always pronounce it Sane. And I just have to keep thinking in my head, it's Sen as in Senate. And it, even, even when I was preparing for this episode, I'm like, remember, Senate. Don't say it wrong. So there we go. Is that why she's your favorite character? Well, no, she's my favorite character because she's fancy. (sighs) Jay. What? Jay. Okay. And professional. Okay, Jay. (laughs) Brian, how about you? So uh, you you create create this character that's Intel that's this intelligence genius and also a deadly shot with a sniper rifle. Yeah, that's gonna that's gonna be a character that endears themselves to me very quickly. Um I really liked her. Um one of my favorite characters in the book, and uh I I really loved the arc, even if it ended as tragically as it did. Yeah. Oh yeah, full uh, full warning, guys. We're doing full spoilers about Inferno Squad book, which if you haven't read it, number one fix that please uh maybe come back to this afterwards because we're gonna spoil it um brian are you glad i finally made you read the book though i am glad you finally made me read the book oh good it it was a very Uh, good book yeah so many feelings um so i first read the book when it initially came out two years ago back in july and i had a review copy which i think meant we got it about a week or so ahead of published date and even though Jay and I live, what, five miles apart, maybe-ish, um, for some reason, I always get the books like a day before he does. So I, I say this mostly because I immediately started reading the book, obviously, because I had some feelings about Ida and Versi already. What? And you? 
I know. Crazy, right? They just showed me a trailer and I was like, I love her. <laughs> Could you say you identify with her? You know what? I I would say that I identify strongly with Aiden Versio. I will allow that pun. Why are yes. you indulging him? Because it was good, Brian. Was it though? It was. It was. I'll I'll give him this one. Um <laughs> This will be a day long remembered. Something, something the Senate. Uh, so Jay, I wanted to ask you, do you really remember those caps lock flailing text messages I sent you when I started reading the book and I realized that Sen was Asian? Oh yes. Um I don't remember the precise details, but I definitely remembered like you were like, no spoilers, but you know, then you were talking about the character and then I could be wrong, but didn't you like immediately want to go grab your ISB attire and take a take like a, a photo in that outfit? I, I was tempted, yeah. Uh I was very tempted to do that, especially once I realized I basically already had the uniform together. Um I think I waited because I wanted to finish reading the book. And I had already spent enough time like throwing the book down and frantically texting you and being like look, no, no, we know for real. We know for real she's Asian. There's no way you describe her eyes like that and it's not Asian. Um, which also, that kind of just wanted to mention that I know we talked about this like a year ago about what are good ways to describe and make sure that you know a character is is of a, a, a specific race when you can't use things like Asian. Um, and I really liked how Christy Golden handled that here because it made it much more obvious than it did in than uh claudia gray was able to do with carice um yeah that was a that was a fun thing i think that was the one thing where i was like jay please like i won't spoil you truly but i need to just tell you about this one thing because i need to freak out to someone (laughs) (laughs) and and it's pretty rare that i i i I let spoilery details go through but i felt like well this was this sounded very important and exciting yeah. And I'm usually pretty good about not spoiling you on things. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh so we're just gonna do just a quick a quick rundown on um her background. So she has the is it eidetic or edetic? I can never eidetic memory. She knows twenty-nine languages, can I think read another seven. And my favorite is that she corrects the dad role about how many languages she speaks. And Ida's just like, no one does this. Oh my god. And then he's like, Did I get that right that time? And she just like nods and just doesn't care. And I'm just like, oh, holy crap. Um, she's a member of Naval Intelligence. She's a lieutenant. She is the youngest of uh, of all the Inferno Squad members. I think she's only 20 at the time of the book. Wow. 20 or 22. So pretty young. Um, I think it's and she's 20. Also 20. Yeah. Because uh, Iden would be 23, I think. 22, 23. Hask is 27, and then Dell is 33. Um, Jay, did I write this next line, or did you? Oh, I absolutely added that. Okay, because <laughs> it could have gone either way. Uh, and then, as Jay would like to point out, she is comfortable in fancy social situations despite having a distaste for elegant gowns. But her and, her and Hask do pull off the fancy wear. That is true. They have that whole uh, heist at the fancy party. It's like a Moff's daughter's birthday or no wedding. Moff's daughter's wedding. wedding. Yeah. And uh, that was a great chapter. I specifically reread that chapter like in detail because that's obviously the most important part of the book. Right. 
No. No, not not even close, Jay. But, I mean, it shows how the team got together, how they planned the perfect heist, how they're great at getting into character, you know, how they identified the mission. It's clearly extremely significant. No. Also, the heist planning happens... The heist happens before that. Or the heist planning happens before that. Yeah, but this is the actual heist. No one cares about the planning. (sighs) Brian. Jay, you're wrong. Thank you. As if this is a democracy. It's not. I'm in charge. So you're the Senate? I am the Senate. Damn it. Or in this situation, I am the I am your commanding officer. Stand down. All right, Commander Versio. <laughs> what just happened? I mean, I don't know. We're always like this. It's fine. <laughs> In my defense, I was idling for a whole bunch of hours on Saturday, so I guess it's still deep in my soul. Um, and then uh, I completely lost where I was in the show notes. Oh, there we go. So for her plot line, um, it's a lot like what happens with with much of Invariant Squad. They're all recruited into the squad by the Admiral after the Death Star is exploded uh, for their their skills. Um and then the Dadmiral points them towards the Dreamers, who are a uh, splinter group from what's left of the Partisans. There's a leak somehow that's that's in there that bad things are happening to the Empire, and they need to stop it. So Inferno Squad all goes undercover their separate ways, and Sen kind of gets a <laughs> interesting cover story. Uh, she goes undercover as a slave, which sort of makes her the one who is the most easily trusted by the Dreamers. Because they buy her story completely. Um, ends up working with them. Uh, there's a teenage boy named Zadori who gets romantically interested in her. Um, she uses her slave story background as a way to gain their trust. And then she gets, you know, they they take advantage of her forgery skills that she u- says that she had because her slave master used to make her uh, use those skills for him. And then she gets brought along on a mission where she and Sidori have to pretend to uh, be good little Imperial children. And then they're supposed to blow up the building with 400 kids in it because the Dreamers are trying to prove a point against the Moths. And Sen makes the decision that she's not that's too far for her. So she delays the bomb timer to go off 15 minutes instead of five minutes so all the kids will be out. Sidori goes back because he wants to complete the mission and she can't stop him without telling him what she did. Uh, he dies. <laughs> it's very sad. Everyone's like, oh no. Um, Sidori's parents are sad. They kind of adopt Sen. And then Sen does something to mess up. And then I start crying because, oh. and I cry the whole rest of the book. Oh yep. God. He's yeah. <laughs> the back end of this book is brutal it's like a slow motion horror story as you see it unfold and yeah so the worst chapter the most painful chapter in this book is chapter 25 i accidentally stopped reading around chapter 24 last night and so i had just this sitting there when for me to read at lunch which hurt a lot um so she accidentally she's again she's very gifted in languages but she told the dreamers that she only spoke basic and huddies 
she keeps hearing all these conversations around her. She can hear Sidori's parents chatting amongst themselves, but she has to pretend she's always had to pretend she doesn't know. And then she hears Donna and Pical talking in Chowder Fan. And then she slips up and responds to it. And it completely gives her away. Because they're like, you don't just pick up Chowder Fan. Like, that's not what you do. They figure out that she is some sort of spy that she's been working against them. And then because Stavid is the worst person on the face of the planet, he, he's like, all right, I'm going to make Aiden. Go oh, ahead. Screw him. Ugh. Yeah, Stavid straight up sucks. Um, He makes Aiden interrogate her. And Sen makes the choice to basically kill herself on the, the knife that Aiden's holding in hopes that she can keep their covers intact. And it hurts a lot, <laughs> especially after then Aiden has to talk to Steven and she just has to like completely sell the fact that she didn't know any of this. And there's always a hint of truth in the best lies. <sighs> Inferno Squad hurts, guys. Inferno Squad is pain. Pain is Inferno oh. Squad. Yeah. <sighs> so let's get this one out of the way. Um, since we're talking about Sen's death. Did her death shock you? And I yes. don't necessarily okay. Um, and I'll, I'll elaborate the rest of the question is there's two parts to it. Is one, did you expect her to die in this book? And then two, if even if you did expect her to die, was the how it happened rather rather than the fact that it happened that kind of threw you? So I didn't expect her necessarily to die. Like I knew she wasn't one of the announced members of Inferno Squad, but we hadn't had in the game yet. So for all we knew, she could be in the game in some other role. Um, and how she died, especially like I, I had said just earlier, it felt like a slow motion horror story because like once once that's like you, you knew the mission was eating at her before they had to go blow up the kids and then especially afterwards but she was so dedicated to it. And as soon as she slipped up and everything sort of just like fell out from under her, it just, it was one of those situations where you wanted to like leap into the book and help, but you couldn't. And you know, that's kind of what her squad mates felt in because they also couldn't help her. And then the way she just died on Aiden's blade like that, like I think I had partially blacked it out the first time I read it. And so rereading it just recently was like, experiencing the horror all over again and i'm really sad that i remember that that it happened now for me it's actually kind of a yes and no answer um yes i'm i'm surprised that the death happened and it was so sudden but also no i'm not surprised but because for me i kind of view sen as the member of inferno squad that was most loyal to the ideals of the Empire and would do something like that. Huh. So I want to dig into that a little bit more as you can see further down. But I actually want to share some, uh, read something from Twitter earlier because I was tweeting about crying at my desk, um, reading chapter 25. And Mitch Dyer replied to me with, is it better or worse that Hask was originally going to kill Sen on Vardos during the all caps confrontation? <sighs> I mean, I'm just going to add to this the pile of reasons that I hate Gideon Hask. Gideon straight up <laughs> sucks. My wife just shouted from the uh, from the other room, F Hask. 
mask is the worst. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think even though it, it didn't happen that way, well, it, it, it's such a hask move to do that, that we're going to hold it against him anyway. Just add to the list of every other reason why he sucks. Yeah. Um, I actually don't know which of these next questions I want to get into next because they're all sort of tied together. Um, so w- your opinion is, I mean, granted, I just read Mitch's tweet, uh, but of course we have to keep into mind that that version of Sen would have, was probably very different than the version of Sen we, we got in, uh, in, in the Inferno squad book, especially because I think Christy said, wasn't Sen a guy at that point. Um, so it was not the adorable, sweet, but also very deadly Sen Marana that we knew. Um, do you think that she would have ha- sided with Hask or with Ida and Dell at that turning point in Battlefront 2? So I th- I think she would have sided with Aiden and Dell ultimately. And it's it's her ele- it was her electing to lengthen the fuse on the bomb that kind of informs my decision on that. Um so when I say that Sen is the most loyal to the ideals of the Empire, I mean she's loyal in a way, to the Empire in a way that Hask isn't. Hask is loyal to the power of the Empire, where Sen is loyal to the ideals. And when it becomes clear to Sen that the the Empire itself has betrayed those ideals, she'd absolutely go with Del and Aiden. Yeah, I think she might struggle with it internally because I think there's sort of two sides to her character. When you first meet her, she's like an intelligence analyst. She says how she spent all her time looking at screens and analyzing data. And that's kind of the world she lived in. And she wanted to do a real field mission. And when that reality hit her and especially the need to keep doing these atrocities to maintain the deep cover, she always justified it. Well, this is for the greater good. This is to, you know, help the people of the empire, the people of the galaxy. And when it came down to murdering 400 kids and she said no, I think she would say absolutely the same thing to the citizens of Vardos during Operation Cinder and Operation Cinder in gender. I think in general, I think it might like break her even more than it broke Aiden and Dell because it's just the complete repudiation of everything she would have believed. But I have no hesitation in thinking that she would have uh, sided with Aiden and Dell. Yeah, I agree with both of you guys. Um, Something about the book that always kind of leaves me a little bit unsettled is how all four members of the squad deal with Alderaan at first, as in they're able to sort of compartmentalize and believe the propaganda lie that the Empire sells them of, you know, oh, it was an entirely rebellion planet. You know, they were all guilty of being a part of this. This is the Organa's fault. Um, And to me, it's interesting that, you know, you then... You get then get to the point at the end of the book where it's heavily implied that Aiden, who again was saying all of those things about Alderaan and you know how they were toasting with the Tonare wine, um, how Aiden, it's heavily implied that she let the mentor go, and how Dell wanted to try and see if he could get Pikao treatment some in some way, except of course Hask ruined it all because he's just a murderous bastard. Um, and I can't help but wonder where Sen would have come down on that. Cause I can't, I can't see a world in which Sen would have wanted to go out of her way and she would have sided with Hask to kill, to kill Donna or Dana, Donna, Dana, whatever. Uh, Dana, um, the audio book pronounced it. 
there we go. Thank you. I haven't listened to the audiobook in like a year. Um, but I would think that she would have wanted to try and help Dana, that she would have wanted to not unnecessarily kill people. And I could only see that getting more pronounced, just like it did for both Aiden and Dell over the years. Yeah, she was very much um so Hask and and Sen are kind of like exact opposites because they're both very mission first, but like uh Sen is, you know, she obeys the parameters of the mission, stays professional, but she also keeps in mind what are our greater goals here. Whereas Hask is kind of like, this is the letter of the law, this is what the rule says, this is my order, I'm gonna carry it out, you know, that's it, we're done. And yeah. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about that before. That's a really good point, Jay. I'm gonna be thinking about that about that one for a while. Um let's also talk a little bit about her loyalty to the Empire. Because like you're I mean, we've been talking about it already, but I'd wonder is she kind of one of the purest examples of someone raised to believe the Empire is so obviously right and that she might also be the blindest to blindest to its flaws because she's about the same age as Luke and Leia if she's 20 if she's 20 or 20 years old um which means that unlike the rest of them she was literally completely raised into the empire being a thing yeah I'm reminded of um an interview that John Jackson Miller did or maybe it wasn't even an interview maybe it was actually part of the short story he did orientation which is uh Ray Sloan's early career where he was contrasting like the older Imperials who lived under the Empire to the new generation that lived under the Republic to the new generation that grew up under the Empire. And I think Sen is, you know, even younger than Ray Sloan and she's just known the Empire is all she's known. So the vision of the Empire as a quote unquote force for good in the galaxy is just ingrained to her. She really believes that she's never had the chance to see anything different, especially with, um, and this is where the fancy party comes back. If she does come from like a privileged background all she's seen are the fruits of what the empire has to offer. And yeah, she has the privilege of saying, you know, I, you know, I reject the fancy stuff. I'm going to work for Imperial intelligence, but she's only seen the good parts of it and being, you know, being on this field work, seeing the dreamers, even though they're sort of the worst of the rebels or the worst of the good guys, um, still shows her kind of a taste of reality. And I think that's very sobering for her. Ryan, uh, it's I, I really like this question because it it gets into one of my favorite things that um, sort of uh, the uh, especially the books since the uh, since the Disney sale have gone into is examining why people are with why people stay with the Empire, why people. Uh, why people are loyal to the Empire. And for Sen, um, and there's been a couple other characters uh, that other books have talked about, just being born into it and being indoctrinated in it and just living it, uh, it's... It, it, you can really see why... You can really see why someone wouldn't be able to see the flaws of the Empire. And... And uh, it it really make it really makes um it really makes the Imperials as a whole more compelling when you get a character like Zen, because when once you start seeing how she's looking at the Empire, you can start understanding other characters in this universe and how they look at the Empire. So I I, I really like it. It's a great it's a great uh, great 
great way to uh, explore that territory with, with how uh, Sen was written in this book. Yeah, and Jay, I feel like you and I have talked about this before, um, but with how the Empire has been set up now, especially, uh, we have to remember that most people probably didn't see that much of a difference when the, when the Republic became the Empire. Um, to them, it was probably just like a lot of people just saw it as a name change. Because um, I bet most of the people in Coruscant didn't really feel the worst effects, at least not at first. Um, Palpatine yeah. is very good at what he does. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, the transition of the Empire took place a long time. Like the Star Wars propaganda book was great at showing how the Republic was slowly turning into the Empire. But as far as people know, like the Empire ended this terrible war. They don't know that the Empire caused it, right? And things in the core systems where the majority of the people probably live um, continued the same as they were. You know, the Jedi were gone, but most people probably never interacted with the Jedi in their lives. The Senate never did anything for them anyway, so they wouldn't have noticed. And the Senate's still still around. Um you know, when Sen was growing up, at least. Uh, and yeah, I mean, unless you're in an outer rim world or world with resources, you're not seeing these changes. And even then, the changes were subtle. Like if you read a book like Lost Stars or Servants of the Empire, uh, the Empire is very careful about how they grab local loyalties and hide what they're doing from you. And then as soon as you if you when you find out, then they disappear you. So you have no chance of telling anyone else anyway. Yeah, there was a there was a line in here somewhere. I can't remember where, but I think it was I want to say something the Admiral was saying, but they were talking about, you know, what chaos the Rebel Alliance has sown and um how they've had to like double down on everything and how what they really wanted to do was um you know, they were going to have to crack down and be harsher, but once once they got past this, they could be a bit more benevolent again. Oh yeah, didn't they also have that during like the Death Star part where they're all like, you know, it, it's a, it. We can't believe the rebels forced this into destroying Alderaan. Like they forced us into this. Like it yeah. was anger at the rebellion for for being so bad that the Empire had to do this to them. Something like that, yeah. But it, that was interesting to me. And then I've always sort of seen, and I I hadn't necessarily. I was. I mean, to be fair, I think about Del Mico a lot. What but, um, you know? I know. Listen, he's such a good boy. He, he gets is. drunk. He accidentally gets drunk and thinks about how Aiden is pretty. And then he's like, no, can't do that. She's my commanding officer. Get a hold of yourself, Miko. Ah, uh, Del, you good soft boy, you. He's such a good boy. Um, although speaking of this, hair wait, I'm going to, I did this to, to Brian in Slack the other day. Remember that time that Gideon Hass goes, Dad, let's always be friends. Oh, and then Dale goes, deal. And it's supposed to be great. And it's not great. Um, so much fridge horror. <laughs> um, but I bet like for people like Dale, especially uh, joining the Empire's military probably didn't feel too much different from joining a military on Earth. You know, it was probably something that I mean, and I know that's a very loaded political thing to say, but uh I'm sure, which is kind of like, okay, here's the potential career path. And I bet it could have been similar for Sun as well. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, she's like got her eidetic memory. She's gifted with languages. You know, she probably did well in school. Maybe she like, you know, they do this in real life, right? Like intelligence agencies recruit bright kids from school. That's probably exactly what happened to Sen. 
Yeah. Um, and related to that, I, I had a sub bullet in here about about uh, her loyalty, about how very calm she is and accepting. Like, I didn't just kind of like, uh, what the heck? But Sen just kind of nods and goes, yeah, sure. No problem. When the dad rolls like, yeah, we're going to have to make sure your cover story for being a slave is great, which includes basically mutilating and modifying her body for the purpose of her cover story and being wear- willing to wear an explosive collar that could have literally killed her. That that really unnerved me this time around. She was yeah. so calm. She's like, it's, it's realistic. They're going to be suspicious. It has to look right. She was just so like, calmly I mean, accepting of I it. I mean, that was so extreme. Iden balked initially at at the thought of all that. But uh, yeah, that says something about Sen's loyalty that she just took it in stride and went with it. Wasn't there a thing where Aiden was literally like she just wanted to protect that girl? And I was like, wow, she really does remind me of Rhea. <laughs> I did actually want to talk about um, – I did want to talk about Sen and Aiden's relationship because there's something very neat that Christy Golden does in this book uh, with how Aiden thinks of people. And she starts out with – she thinks of Hask as being Gideon because they've known each other. They grew up together. They're kind of like best friends slash, rival, slash friendly, friendly rivals. Um but she thinks of Dallas and Sen by their last names of Miko and Marana. She switches from Marana to Sen pretty quickly, um, which I think sort of connects to the protectiveness she felt. Uh, and she always thinks of how she's younger, even though she's only a couple years older than Sen is. Um, was there anything about their sort of, and I think I would genuinely call it friendship uh, that stood out to you guys? Yeah, I mean, I think Aiden starts thinking of her as just very young and, you know, very naive. And then when she learns how capable Sen is and, you know, what kind of sang Freud she has, um, then, you know, Aiden respects her. And so those two things combine together, right? Both the protectiveness and that respect. And I think that really generates into friendship very quickly. Like they're sort of bantering and talking together as quickly as like the first mission together. And it, it, it's interesting. Um, how quickly that happened compared to like Dell, who had to sort of, I had to bring down her guard a little bit with Dell, right? It was a different dynamic between those two. Yeah. Um, there is, it's clear that, um, there's mutual respect that developed really early, uh, between Aiden and Sen. And, uh, it's, it, it was a really interesting, uh, it was a really interesting relationship to read. Um, like there's, there's not enough, there's not enough media that features women characters who have such a respectful, friendly, professional relationship like that. So it's, it, it was nice to see in this book. Yeah. Oh man. Do you guys think that when Aiden was on Vardos confronting Hask that she was thinking of Sen's sacrifice when she made her own stand and refused to do Cinder? Not at the time, I don't think. Yeah, I, I, I don't think, think she at the time. probably. I think I, I yeah I don't think that she had time to think about anything but what was happening right then. Now after they get off of Vardos and she's there. She and Dell are talking in the docking bay. I bet Sen probably was on her mind some. Um, but I don't think during the mission. 
she was a little bit too upset at Hask. Yeah. And the Empire in general. Um, but, okay, let's see. Um, just a general book question for you guys. How did you feel of the juxtaposition of the best of the Empire versus the parts of the Rebellion that didn't seem to have a moral line? I thought it was brilliant because it portrayed them as almost the same. And that's sort of what got, I think, the characters thinking about the ambiguity of what they were doing, right? The Empire thinks they're good guys. The Dreamers think they're good guys. They both have to do what's necessary for the right cause. And I think it would have been a very different dynamic if we got your typical idealistic rebels with strong moral lines because, I I don't know, I kind of feel like they would be easier for... In front of squad to just dismiss and say, you know, they're delusional, they're really bad. But when they, when the Imperials start seeing how similar they are in means and methods, I think that's what really gets them thinking about it. Yeah, I, I think the Dreamers were a mirror that showed Inferno Squad some uncomfortable truths about themselves, which I thought was very effective and clever. Yeah, I agree with that, especially. Um especially the longer they were with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, something that stood out to me this time when I was reading the book, because uh, I played through the first couple of missions, I played through Pilio on Friday, sort of as a, I've missed the game, it's been two years. Uh, there's a line in here where I think Stavin tells her rebellions are built on hate, which is a very interesting contrast to Cassian and Jin's rebellions are built on hope. And it's a line that she mentions in the game itself. I think she says to Dell when they're flying off of Endor, someone once told me rebellions were built on hate. Um, so related to that, uh, did, um, was there anything about the book and Inferno's backstory six out to you now that we're two years out from the game coming out? And Brian, I actually want to start with you because you're in a unique position since Jay and I both read the book before the game came out and you, on the other hand, played the game, then read the backstory. Uh, I, I really liked, I, I think something that may have been missing for me a little bit um, when I played through the game the first time was the uh, relationship between Hask and Aiden. Um, I, I mean, I, I could tell that there was clearly some butting of heads going on in the game, but I, I think having all of this additional context from the book really makes, uh, Hask's turn all the more painful and makes me hate him all that much more. Um, there's a whole lot of fridge horror, uh, of like Vardos's ultimate fate, um, and, uh, yeah, um, do you want to explain what fridge horror is for people who aren't addicted to TV tropes? Uh, fridge horror. Let me pull up the page. Uh, fridge horror is, uh, and I'm reading from the TV tropes page. Fridge horror is simply put when something becomes terrifying after the fact, maybe you thought about this or that plot point a little too hard. And suddenly you realize that everyone was trapped in stasis forever or that the lovable child will grow up in a world where everyone around her is dead. This can be intentional or unintentional by the author. Um, yeah, you can you can see you can see uh, the fracturing of that relationship uh, with Aiden and Hask in this book. Uh, you see where it all starts there. Um, you uh, 
what ultimately happens to Vardos uh, makes the scenes uh, in the book all the more horrifying. Um, oh, I can add one to this. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So I've pointed out before, like the whole the Hask and Dell relationship is actually fascinating because he's never seen Dell as a rival. And they've just been they've been friends. And when they're on Vardos, he says, please, to Dell, like, don't do this. Please don't do this. He never says please to Aiden. Um, and then you think about how Has- Dell's last words before Hask executes him are tell aren't begging for his life. They're asking Hass to not die, to not do this because Aiden will kill him. And he's begging Hass to save his own life. Um, Think about how in this book, they pose as brothers and get to know each other pretty darn well. Oh, God, it hurts. Ouch. Yeah. Yep. Oh, oh, and I can tell you something. Uh, so in the book, I, I don't remember if they actually, I, I can't bring myself to replay the Kylo level. But in the game, uh, you can hear Dell saying his toast from the start. I toast Admiral Versio. That is a dialogue line in the game that you hear in the book. And I'm pretty sure you kind of hear at least Sen's name said. Oh. Oh, no. Yeah, so this book makes the game hurt more. A lot more. Significantly more. Inferno Squad, everything's amazing, but also it hurts a lot. <laughs> Thanks, Christy Mitch and Walt. <laughs> Accurate. Mm-hmm. How about you, Jay? Yeah, so when we first read the book, we had no idea how the story of the game was going to end up. We were still sort of convinced that the tra- uh, as the trailers told us that Inferno Squad was, you know, the arch imperial loyalist squad that fought on beyond Endor and would become part of the First Order. And so when I was reading this book, when we were all reading this book, that's kind of what we had in mind. And so going back, knowing how the game turns out, um, you can see little little things that you weren't even trying to look for um you know hacks behavior where he starts rubbing Aiden the wrong way where Aiden's thinking more about what she's asked to do and the kind of rationalizations she's making and how she's processing things so i thought all that insight and especially with dell the same like dell um we we already knew from the game promotion material that he was like the soft touch he was the nice guy of the three characters in the game that really also came across more strongly now in the uh, book as well. So just being able to pay attention for character insights that I wouldn't have thought to look for the first time. Yeah. I think for me, what hit me the worst this time around um, was when she gets back from her mission or when they get back from the mission. And I know we're, we're kind of tangenting from said, we'll get back to her in a minute, but where Aiden starts talking to her, to her father, she goes through the whole mission report. She does, they, you know, they do everything very professionally because they're versios and versios don't say, hi, dad. They say, admiral. Um, and she asks, can I, you know, how soon can I see mama? Because her mother had been sick and her mother had had to be in on it. And she got that message from Zihei 
on on Vardos, where Zihei was just like, I'm very disappointed in you. Oof. And then her dad, yeah, and then the dad said, the admiral goes, you might want to sit down. And he tells her that her, her mother died about three weeks into the mission. But he tells her, and she's like, oh, so she died thinking I was a traitor. And you find out the dad admiral broke protocol to make sure that his ex-wife didn't die thinking their daughter had turned against the empire. That hit me super hard this time, and I don't know why. But man. Uh, oh, man. That, yeah, that was rough. Yeah. Did you listen to the audiobook for the entire thing? or No, I alternated between the audiobook and uh, my Kindle copy. Did you did you listen to the audiobook for when she gets the initial message from Zihei? I sure did, and it was brutal. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, if anyone doesn't know, Janina Gavankar actually read the audiobook uh, for Inferno Squad. She's the voice actress for Aiden, and, or the actress in general for Aiden, and she did an incredible job with the, with the audiobook. Um, I'm not even an audiobook person, and I loved it. Uh, but yeah, man, this book, it's so good. It really is. I highly recommend it if you haven't read it. Yeah. Getting back to Sen, though, uh, before I just start sitting here crying quietly, let's be Legends nerds for a moment, like we all are. How do you think Sen Marana would react if, let's say, hypothetically, she had survived you know, uh, survived this book and gone over to the Re- New Republic with Ian and Dell. Uh, how do you think she would have reacted to meeting someone like, oh, I don't know, Winter? So I, I think that while she was in the Empire, if she was aware of Winter, I think she would have begrudging professional respect for Winter's ability. Um, if she made it to the New Republic, I think she'd look up to Winter. Especially if, oh, oh, can you imagine her meeting Winter and Tycho? Oh. Oh, Oh, man. It's an AU I'm here for. Yeah, because that the line that that Sen has about where Aiden's trying to, like, comfort her, even though Aiden's never had to comfort someone in her entire life. And Sen's like, no, you don't understand. You can forget this. I can never, ever forget this. Ever. Oh, um, that that might have actually been the moment of the book that hurt me the most. Yeah. That was just, just so painful how she just kind of lays into Aiden about that one. Yeah. And can you imagine her getting to talk to someone who, you know, also has perfect recall? And who had to remember seeing her entire planet die. Oh. Now that is a that is a dark one-shot fic if someone wants to write that. I feel like it should be right up my alley, but I can't. I'll just cry. <laughs> just cry the entire time. Ugh. What do you think, Jay? So I think you both covered what I wanted to say. One, that she'd have sort of a professional antagonist relationship. I was... I sort of had the vibes of like, um, you know, 
the analyst who's trying to catch Carmen Sandiego in the new cartoon, not the incompetent cop, but the actual smart, um, actually, yeah, the smart Asian young lady analyst. Um, <laughs> perfect, actually, trying to uh, catch Carmen Sandiego and um, picking up clues about it. And then if they're on the same side, again, that, that scene with the eidetic memory and and always seeing that traumatic memory, I think being able to talk to someone like Winter, who's someone who actually understands and wouldn't just offer um, the usual, you know, you'll heal in time, I think would be very helpful. Yeah. Oh, man. Now I really do want to. Oh. I'd love to see just like a one shot comic of Sen and Winter working on opposite sides and then always coming up against each other. That'd be so cool. Oh, man. Things we'll never get. Oh, alas. Yeah. Jay, do you want to talk about your art corner? Sure. Um, so for today's art corner, I think I'm going to be stretching the definition of art a little bit uh, to you talk about it. imperial intelligence. But, you know, org charts counters art, right? No, no Jay. <laughs> <laughs> no. Too bad. They do now. Oh, my God. <laughs> so uh, those of us who've read Legends, speaking of winner, knows about... Um, Imperial intelligence being this big thing, this big antagonist in legend, it was sort of the empire's equivalent of the KGB. Um, they were the big scary ones. And then ISB, Imperial Security Bureau, was more like the Gestapo. But, you know, they were more of the, the comical inept cops and the, the Imperial intelligence was like the professional ones and they had a, a friendly service rivalry. But, um... In canon, it's kind of the opposite, where there's a lot of focus on the Imperial Security Bureau. You know, we see them in Rebels with Agent Callus. We see the First Order equivalent of them with Agent Tyranny and Resistance. They're, they're in a lot of stories. Intelligence doesn't figure a lot. Um, but Sen's background in Inferno Squad is that she's an, analysis, an analyst from Naval Intelligence. And um, that seems to have inherited the old Imperial Intelligence role, at least as we saw it in... James Lucino's Tarkin novel, where uh, military, as he called it, military intelligence was the was the imperial intelligence arm, and then, strangely enough, Armand Isard was recanonized, but he was in charge of Compnor for some reason, Commission for the Preservation of the New Order. But anyway, all that org charting aside, it was cool to see Sen embody the old professional analytical mission focused uh, imperial intelligence we know and love. And it was even cool to see her abbreviate her organization as Navint because Imperial Intelligence uh, in Legends loved its abbreviations and lingo and acronyms. They're very, very government, I guess. <laughs> I just need you to know that Brian and I tweeted the same exact thing, more or less, <laughs> within like 20 seconds of each other. Oh, my God. You did. <laughs> I just got the mentions. Not that what you said wasn't very interesting, but Brian and I had to drag you for the org chart is art thing. <laughs> oh, this is almost literally the exact same, even I down know. to thing in unison. No. <laughs> <sighs> oh, the country cast is a good time, guys. <laughs> uh, that was. Um. Jay, I don't know if you could have stretched the definition any further than you just stretched it. He broke it. He snapped it. 
So in full in full uh, admission, I deliberately did not write that line in the notes because I wanted to make sure I heard your reaction to me saying that. <laughs> oh man! Um, wow! You're talking about ISB. Sorry, I'm, I'll I'll try to roll with this for a minute. Uh, I actually wasn't sure originally if I could pull a Sen costume out of the uniforms I already had until we got to the she had a white tunic part because I couldn't tell if. I didn't know if naval intelligence also wore the white tunic that ISB does, but yeah, I made it work. And this kind of goes back to Legends again. So when we got the, um, oh shoot, what was it called? Agents of the Empire, the comic with the, the Imperial Intelligence agent, uh, Jahan Cross. I think it was Agent of the Empire. The yeah. Agent of the Empire, yeah. yeah. Um, so he was an Imperial Intelligence spy. Great comic, by the way, if you guys haven't read it. Um, and, but, and, his uniform was always the white tunic with the black pants that we'd always associated with ISB. And so that was when those uniforms were first legends canonized as Imperial intelligence. And I guess, um, Canon is going with the same thing. Um, also the visual guide for rogue one made reference to, um, one of the Krennic subordinates actually being part of Imperial intelligence, not ISB, but he was also still wearing the, the white and the black uniform. Huh. Yeah, it felt like the uh felt like they always tried to make sense of it and then sometimes, you know. I mean it, it it's like, you know, same thing movies, comics, people people draw things and then um you know, they usually do their homework and then sometimes things just happen and we end up explaining them, but you know, they seem to be doing a pretty consistently good job of it right now, making sure everything's right. Yeah. Moral of the story is I was able to do a closet cosplay of Sen because I even happened to have a lieutenant's rank bar. Because logic. Um, so, yeah. Uh, anyways, so we just had one question this week for Tell, tell That to Kanji Cast. Uh, and it is possibly the question that made all of us go, oh, no, when we saw it. Diana asked, who was your Sen fan cast? I'm We're all so very bad, about bad this. at this. Like, I need you guys to know that even though we did an entire episode about this, we literally took an entire month to work on that. <laughs> I needed the whole month to work on that. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing is, because Sen is so young, a lot of the established actresses that we might know of from other projects might not fit the role. So it also involved sort of researching up and coming actresses who might not have been on like a full name basis with. And let me tell you, Googling young east asian actresses i have regrets <laughs> i'm so sorry to my google search history <laughs> um i did come up with three though uh and my first one i kind of took back a little bit because i didn't realize that she was actually older than me uh but kimiko Gulen, i think her name is she was on orange is the new black and she played susu i think um I'm going to try and make sure I get her name right. Yeah, Kimiko Glenn. Um, I She has a very round face. I could kind of see her working as Sen. But then again, I made the ill-advised Google search. And Lana Condor is only 22. And I thought she could probably pull it off. Um, She was in all the Bo- to All the Boys I Love Before. And the only other actress I could think of was maybe the one who plays Nico, Lyrica Okano. But I like Lana Condor better, I think. I don't know. What about you guys? 
So um, I'm changing my answer based on what I had in mind because I think I might have a, have a better one, which is um, since we talked about Parasite, um, one of the main characters in the story is a very clever, technically talented young girl who also has sort of a spine of steel. And um, she's played by the South Korean actress Sodam Park. Um, she actually is, she's, I think she's just under 30 and she, you know, she played the part well in, in Parasite. I think she'd be perfect for uh, San Marana, actually. Hmm. You got to say something, Brian. Uh, I, I'm so bad at this. Like the only person I could think of was Lana Condor. Um, but if I'm going to give you a cop-out answer, my cop-out answer would be, I'd love for someone to be cast who has not gotten a chance to be in a film, like, in a Star Wars before. Oh, yeah. That'd be cool. And then, of course, I guess you have taken to mind that they'd have to be able to... You'd need someone who could mesh well with the other actors for yeah. Inferno Squad. Yeah. So yeah, I don't really have a fan cast, I guess, is the thing. We tried. We tried, Diana. We tried. We tried. Um, we're so bad at fan casting. And people want to like ask me to fan cast Afra every five seconds. I'm like, I don't know. I mean, some people are really good at it and they love doing it, and I'm impressed with their ability to match actors with characters. I cannot do it. Although I think in in retrospect, I'm actually happy with whoever I ended up with because I think characters fit so yeah no i mean i think we all did we collectively did a pretty damn good job for the casting the make star wars asian episode but yeah <laughs> it needed um, a month of lead time <laughs> it did and some collaborative work uh so yeah do you guys have anything last thing you want to say about sen or about the inferno squad book sen is amazing inferno squad is great and painful and you should read it yeah, the uh, same thing. Inferno Squad, it's a great cast of characters and is the best, and uh, be prepared for pain. The good kind, but also the sad kind. Yes. I love all my Inferno Squad children equally. Later. I don't care for Hask. <laughs> that is also very true. Right? Oh, But no, Sen's a good girl. I'm glad we finally got to talk about her, and I'm glad that this was a good excuse to get Brian to to read the book. <laughs> This is gonna be this is gonna be the way you get me to read everything that is on my backlog, isn't it? Maybe. <laughs> Possibly. Great. Listen, aren't you happy though that I made you read this? I am happy that you made me read this. And now the next time you play Battlefront 2, when you're, you know, up late with a tiny human, you'll think about this. And it will hurt even more. Exactly. All right. Let's wrap up the episode then. And uh, we're going to do a little bit of housekeeping before we go. This is actually our last episode for the year because, as you may have noticed, we've been super subtle about it this episode. But uh, Brian and his wife are having a baby next month, which means things like podcasts are going to be a little bit less important. So... Last podcast of the year for the Kanji Cast. Uh, we'll be back again in January, and we're planning to talk about The Rise of Skywalker then, because uh, that's what Star Wars podcasts do, and who are we to go against the mainstream, et cetera, et cetera. 
So yeah, uh, if you guys have any questions you want us to answer on a future episode or just want to chime in, you can tweet them to us via the Tasha Station account. Uh, just hashtag them with KanjiCast. And then also please feel free to suggest things you'd like us to talk about. As you may have noticed, I'm currently planning out next year's schedule. So suggest away. This includes people who you think would be awesome guest hosts, um, different topics. I've got about half of the year. One, two, three, four. So about half of the year planned out so far. So yeah, come at us with your suggestions. And I will take us out of here. This episode of the Kanji Cast has been brought to you in part by you, our Patreon subscribers, patreon.com slash Tashi Station. Get in at the $1 level so you can join our Patreon-exclusive Slack so you can tell us how bad we are at fan casting. We're part of the Tashi Station network. Uh, if you like what you hear, uh, head over to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe to the mega feed. Leave a review. Uh, on Twitter, you can find us with the handles Tashi Station. You can find Bria with Chaos Bria. Jay is Admiral Jello. I'm Lane Winry, L-A-N-E-W-I-N-R-E-E. You can find our columns and news at TashiStation.net. Thanks for listening to another episode. We will catch you all in January to talk the rise of Skywalker. So long, everyone. <laughs>